Welcome to ICTUS, the evolving conductor, your source for everything conducting, teaching, and lifelong learning on and off the podium. Treat yourself to a dose of musical inspiration as we pick the minds of great conductors. I'm your host, Lisa Tatum. Happy Thursday, everybody. Today I'm speaking with Norman Wynn, who's the music director at the Bozeman Symphony in Bozeman, Montana. Hey there, everyone. My name is Anne Molesky, and I'm the host of the Anacrusic Podcast, another podcast in the Muted Network. I've helped teacher musicians just like you get more intentional in their classrooms through my trainings, curriculum, and teacher talk. Because the truth is, teaching music is hard. You have a bunch of kids to teach and not a lot of free time to figure out how. Feeling overwhelmed and frustrated is totally normal. But here's the good news. It only takes a few simple steps to flip the script. It may be simple, but it's definitely not easy unless you have the right toolkit. So let's start tuning and transforming your music teacher life right now. Join me on Mondays for tips, tricks, and community conversations about how to make the general music classroom more intentional and impactful for both you and your students. We'll talk about the actual actionable steps you need to find the purpose, follow a sequence, and choose joy in your classroom each and every day. I'll see you there. Hi, Norman. Thank you so much for joining us on ICTUS today. Hello, Lisa. Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you. Oh my goodness. I remember us being like 17 years old and sitting in like all county bands, whatever oh together. I was so long ago. It was so, so long. And I was I was just telling about someone about um MDB and we yeah. in band and Ah, good times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good times. Uh, well, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little about yourself, a little about your history, uh, where you grew up, how you decided that you wanted to be a musician, and specifically where conducting became your main focus. Sure. So I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. It's where I was born and raised. Had a little like five or six years in Alex City and started band in seventh grade, actually mm -hmm. on horn. A lot of people don't know that. And I, I did not know that. Yeah, I was terrible at it and kept begging my band director to let me switch to trombone because I had played my cousin's trombone like three years ago uh, when he brought it home once, I think after his band, I was like, oh, I want to try. And I was, I felt like I was good at it. And so he finally let me switch like after spring break. And once I did that, like the next pass off date, I had gone through, you could do pass offs. I went through like two books in one sitting. It was just like, boom. So trombone was kind of the, the instrument all the way until high school. And then, you know, I was that kid that wanted to play everything. Sure. And they were like, Norman, we need a baritone in the marching band. It's like, okay, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And switch to baritone and eventually played euphonium and concert band and just stuck with it. And eventually someone was like, well, you need to go study with Demandre at Alabama. And so I ended up going to Alabama, studying music education. And so this whole time I was this band kid, right? Like mm -hmm. I had no idea 
about Mozart, Brahms, Beethoven. And it wasn't until my sophomore year where I started taking conducting lessons with Dr. Ratledge yeah. and with, with Demandre as my teacher, they were introducing me to orchestral music and taking conducting lessons with, with Dr. Ratledge and going through the Messiah and some Mozart symphonies, just conducting and learning about technique. And it was in my sophomore year, actually, you know, going at, to Alabama, I was wanting to be a music ed major, band director. And I was like, you know, actually, I want to do the college thing. I want to go because I wanted to conduct a really good ensemble, right? And I was like, let me do the college thing. And I was sitting in my room one night and I came across this video of Mahler 2, the last movement with Simon Rattle and his last performance with them as music director. And I was sitting there with some headphones on for like 20 minutes and just completely entranced by the conductor and this music. After I listened to it, there was this moment where it was, I said, I want to conduct orchestras, period. And that for me was kind of the, the start of why I wanted to go into orchestral conducting. It's just because the repertoire is so incredible. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of my journey into there's into my my history and, and background. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about once you decided that, what was that path like from there on out? I started um, looking at master classes that uh, I could apply for with conducting tape to orchestral master classes. And in order to get a video, I had to put together some people to make a tape. So at Alabama, you know, we started the Capstone Chamber Orchestra, Jamie, Caleb, and did that together. And I was able to make some video tape to send to um, my applications for master classes. I got into a master class and that got tape from that to send to more master classes. And at that point, I think I was around a senior at Alabama, uh, having to think about grad schools. So getting good enough footage and working with teachers in these master classes to learn about orchestral conducting and the repertoire, I ended up befriending some younger conductors who were probably four or five years ahead of me, who were actually where I saw myself next. And I just asked them questions like, where, what do I do next? What, what workshop is really good? Which teachers are respected in the field? And the ones that came up were Peabody, uh, University of Michigan with Kiesler, Peabody was Mr. My Gustav Meyer, NEC, Indiana. Those schools were, if, if you want a job in orchestral conducting, you have to go to one of these schools. They usually put out students that get jobs at really great places. So I ended up getting into Peabody and decided to go there to study with Gustav Meyer, uh, Mark Hanthacker, and Marin Alsop. Yeah. And we had access to the Baltimore Symphony. So that was sort of, and then after, after grad school, it's you audition for jobs and things like that. So one thing led to the next, but really the immediate steps for me were the master class and then befriending folks who were just a couple of years ahead of me to ask them, hey, what, what did you do? And then applying to grad schools and off it went. I love that. It's all about 
putting in the work and making yourself available to accept the knowledge and things that you're going to learn from the people that you come in contact with. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, and looking for that role model and trying to emulate what that person did and not being scared to reach out to just ask folks questions. Yeah. So I just find it so fascinating that from a small town in Alabama, basically, a you know, a euphonium player could go out in the world, a band kid can go out in the world and make a name for themselves in orchestral conducting. And you just recently were in Denmark. Am, am I right about that for a, a conducting competition? Yeah. So there's this conducting competition called the Malco Conducting Competition. It's for conductors 35 and under. They hold it every three years and it's always like impossible to get in almost because they're this year this application year there are over 620 applicants and they invite 24 finalists which i was one of the 24 this year and you go through this competition where there are multiple rounds they give you all this repertoire to to learn and study and prep for and whoever wins gets like a i think it's a 20,000 euro cash prize oh, wow. yeah 20 plus engagements with European and American orchestras in the next three years. So it's like really a, a career rocket booster. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was there. I, I didn't get make it past the, the first round, but being there was certainly an incredible experience. I, I can only imagine. What was it like traveling right now, especially across the pond? I oh can't imagine yeah. international travel, <laughs> even, even at this point. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't too bad. I was vaccinated before I went. Uh, sure. So I, I felt way more comfortable just being around. Um, and, you know, it sucked wearing a mask for 12, 13 hours in the plane. But I ended up getting there a week early so I could get over the jet lag and just get settled in Europe and do the COVID test that I, ne I needed to take when I got there. And just to make sure I was in the right mindset. That's really fantastic. What a cool experience. I learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. Was, what kind of repertoire were they having you work on every day? Or you said they just gave you a whole bunch to do? Yeah. That you had so to prepare? The, each round, there, were, uh, there was a different set of repertoire. So the first round, we had to pick two out of three pieces the, of you could choose between two Mozart symphonies as one of your choices, Weber's, oh, Der Freischutz Overture. Yeah then or Haydn's Symphony 104, the first movement. So that was like round one, you could choose two of those. And then when you got there an hour before, they told you which one of the two you were actually going to conduct. Okay, wow. So, yeah, the second round, um, and you get 15 minutes with the orchestra to do the first round. Second round, they ask for Brahms Symphony number three, mm -hmm. uh, Nielsen Symphony number five, Gosh, I haven't thought about this. And then, an, oh, Mahler, Mahler 4. Oh, just, <laughs> <And> okay. <laughs> you get 20 minutes with the orchestra and you're expected to learn all three. Yeah. Because then these excerpts before you, the day before, for you to conduct. So you're prepared to learn all three, which is, I feel like learning a Mahler symphony takes months on its own. They gave us this repertoire like in February when, and from February to June, you had that amount of time to learn all of that. I feel like that's not even enough time. That- Only not enough time. It's but, like you 
could stop your entire life and just study those scores day in, day out. And still, I feel like it would not be enough time. I felt like I was doing like at least four hours a day on consistently, give or take. Yeah. And it was, gosh, yeah. I Even up to, I felt like I had just barely scratched the surface, really. Yeah. Would you talk a little bit about your process to score study? And during those four hours, how would you work through that? What What would you focus on? Well, for me, this time around, I, of, the basic things I do for a score study are, I, essentially, I start very large and I start with um, the form. Big, very big structure. How is this piece laid out? And then I get a little deeper and I start analyzing just different parts of the form. So what's the orchestration like? I go through the rhythm, sort of do a big analysis, harmonic analysis of each sections of the piece. And then I start learning the orchestration and then the articulation. All of that is sort of just this process of a basic system that I start with. Sure. But this time around, I wanted to get a little bit deeper in the music because I feel like for me, a big shift that I'm trying to learn now is like, okay, I can learn the technical stuff about the piece, but how do I get into the emotional aspect of the work or the, the meaning behind the piece of music? And so this time around, I started actually trying to learn more about the composers as people. Huh. Uh, and listening to the Robert Greenberg series that's on Audible. It's absolutely incredible. But just trying to to empathize with these composers and their lives and what they were going through and the kind of people that they were, what kind of traumatic events that they had that might have shaped their music. Because I think to get deeper, we have to, or at least I wanted to get more to understand that so I could take that technical analysis and then set all that aside and just really get to the meaning behind the notes and the music. And so for, for Malco, I was, I kind of dove in like that for the first time and of trying to think about composers as people and how I would have empathized with them. And that really changed a lot. I felt like I grew a lot in preparing for this competition in that kind of way. Yeah. Humanity. It's something that we forget all the time, I think. And we put these people up yeah. on a pedestal, right? Like we have these heroes and these icons and, you know, composers and conductors and all these people who are, they're great, right? They're fantastic. But at the end of the day, they're humans. They're flesh and blood, just like you and I. And I think yeah. that's so important yeah. to remember. Because mm -hmm. we can all we can all connect with other people's emotions. And if we can listen to a piece of music and say, hey, to me, this really feels yearning or or wanting to go somewhere, but not quite being able to reach it. You know, that comes up in Tchaikovsky's music all the time through his sequences. And, and it, it, if you can give that imagery or emotion to an orchestra or musicians, everyone sort of is thinking that at the same time as they play this music. So then that projects even more out to the audience and people start feeling, you know, it's we're all like collectively feeling emotions at the same time. It's pretty neat. Yeah, <laughs> it is pretty neat. 
Uh, and one of the things that my teacher here at Texas Tech says often is that a score is not a problem to be solved. And mm-hmm. I think that that applies with what you're saying. The more musically we can think our emotionally, our humanity that we can put into the score that we study when we're on the podium and we're able to share those things and those concepts with our ensemble, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a junior high group of beginners or it's an, an, a group of professional players, they can connect to that. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, black and white notes on a page. Yeah, it's really easy to get lost into that, you know, downward <laughs> spiral, but <laughs> it's important to remember the other things too. Well, that's why there are theory and music theory professors and we'll leave all the analysis part up to them. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, Okay, so this whole project started last year as a search for great art and great artistry. And so I'm wondering if you would be willing to share any musicians or conductors that you think are just absolutely amazing. You think anybody that's out there that people should know about? Yes, Simon Rattle is probably my favorite conductor, period. Mm. What makes him so good and why I respect him so much is just the versatility of, of his repertoire and the ri- the range of his repertoire and the level of which he's able to achieve through whatever he's doing. It's always, whether it's a Haydn symphony or it's Lincolnshire Posey, which he has an incredible recording of, or a Brahms symphony, like the, it's always such an incredible musical experience. Another one is... Mitsuko Uchida. Yeah. Pianist. And her recordings of the Beethoven cycle with actually her and Rattle with Berlin Phil on Digital Concert Hall. It's one of my favorite things to just sit down and listen to and watch. I respect her playing so much because not only the the musicality, but the kind of sound that she can get from the piano uh, in that repertoire is just gosh it's so good it's magical it's incredible so Uh, yeah those two stick out in my mind right now as as people that i really admire and respect okay that's those are great places to start i appreciate that i'm curious you know you took over as the music director for the bozeman symphony uh, mm-hmm. this last year. And I know you've also been working with the Oregon Symphony and I, you've been able to have live concerts. What has that been like? <laughs> oh man, you know, it was the very first concert that we did that we were able to get back and have a live audience was in April for uh, Bozeman. Mm. And it was at first, it was kind of jarring because I had almost forgotten what to do of like, I remember at the dress rehearsal, I for, we had to practice um, the cameras and stuff. And I just forgot that the orchestra stood up when I walked on stage. So I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, I, you know, and uh, when, but after that, you know, to hear the applause and of, of an audience was really just, it was so nice to have people to play for and not have to record something to put out uh, digitally and to play for people who wanted to be there to listen to us. 
I, we're such social creatures, right? And it, I really believe that you can't have, you can't recreate the live experience without an audience. You know, the, the reason why we play this music and we're all musicians is because yes, we're doing it for ourselves, but we're really doing it for ourselves so that others can enjoy yeah. that. That was really what was the, the best part of having an audience again. Did you have to navigate any sort of seating or having people spread out? Was that still a thing? What was it like choosing rep that for a limited mm -hmm. ensemble or could you have a full group again? Uh, it, well, in March we had, we were limited to 25 people inside the building. Wow. No, I'm sorry. 50. We, it was okay. 20. We couldn't do anything, but 50. So that was enough for a string orchestra and a camera crew and staff. And as restrictions loosened, like for example, I just did this serenade woodwind concert in, in Oregon on Monday and Tuesday, we had some shows. And because it was outdoors, we were able to, we didn't have to socially distance. And cool. by this time, you know, people, uh, most people have the vaccine or are vaccinated. Yeah. And so that was the great part is actually being able to sit closer together and play next to each other again. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that live concert experience this fall. I think over the last year, I realized that uh, taking time on the podium, I will never take that for granted again, that mm -hmm. I, I really do miss being in front of an audience and, and having something like exactly like you said, to share with them. So, yeah. I think I saw some pictures on social media about your wind octet concert in, in Oregon. And so what, uh, what pieces were on that? I think I saw maybe the Dvorak serenade. So Dvorak serenade was on there. Gosh, it was such good music. We opened with uh, Strauss serenade. Okay. And then we played Gounod's petite symphony. Of course. It was awesome. And then we did this uh, piece, by a Haitian American composer, Natalie Jarchin. So okay. she wrote this piece called Scene for Wind Quintet. And we essentially just doubled the ensemble and wrote the, just divvied out the score to where it would be this sort of antiphonal thing to use more players. And then we ended with Dvorak, Wind Serenade. So okay. it was kind of, it was an awesome, it was a dream. Uh, program to do one day because in normal circumstances I wouldn't have done something like that. That's a yeah, that's a fun program. That's also a lot of music. That's a long concert. <laughs> yeah, like like fifty five minutes of music. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for wind players, and I'm guessing you were probably rotating some people in there, and or was it the same group for most everything? The same, yeah, same musicians for most everything. Oh, that's that's so fun. Oh man, I you know it's <laughs> funny. I've done I've done the the Gounod at conducting symposias so many times. I've spent so much time with that score. I, I would love one day to actually do it at a concert. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. I I didn't really know that piece mm -hmm. at all until a month and a half ago. And learning it was just such a fun process because it's such a light and French piece. And right. Um, and it, it was, there's so much music in it too. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot that you can do. 
So I'm, I'm curious after hearing about that concert and some of the new music that was performed on the end, do you have any other composers that are maybe up and coming or writing new music these days that you could share about? Yes. Thomas Addis is, is one of them. Uh, he's the one who wrote the Sila piece. That's Addis, A-D-E-S. There's this conductor, or not conductor, composer named Andrew Norman, who has incredible music. We've done a couple of his pieces in, in Oregon, and he's commissioned by L.A. Phil and a lot of major orchestras, and he just has, his music is wild. So he's a composer that I really enjoy. There's a composer named uh, Andy Akiho. Okay. Who writes a lot of percussion ensemble works. Okay. And he wrote this percussion concerto for Oregon Symphony and and Colin Curry, who's a soloist, percussionist. And Andy Akiho's music is really special. The, the rhythms that he writes, the the colors and sounds he can get. And they they're just such groovy pieces. That's a composer that is just really fun to listen to. And I'd imagine that conductors on here would want to do some of his music. So what are some of the things that you do on a regular basis to help improve your musicianship or to further your study of the art? One thing that I've been doing recently, and I, I feel like I haven't done in a while, and it's something that I've learned during the pandemic, is to just sit down and listen to music, listening to really great recordings or pieces of music intently and with intention and letting that be all that I do. So I'm not like, I don't have it on in the background. I don't have it and kind of like on my phone, but I'm sitting there kind of in a meditative position and just listen. That to me has been, uh, something I'm rediscovering and finding the benefits of is trying to listen to orchestral music every day and listen mm -hmm. to the repertoire every day. I kind of got away from that outside of school. You know, I, I was just listening to whatever I was studying or if I wasn't listening to orchestral music, just whatever other, other genres of music that I like to have on. But I found that like my mental health and my curiosity and interest in orchestral music has really been rediscovered by just sitting down and listening to, to the music and trying to find new pieces. I always try to listen to a new piece that I don't know every day, especially pieces that I feel like I'm supposed to know, mm -hmm. but don't know, you know? Like I still haven't listened to all the Shostakovich symphonies. So, trying to find time every day to do that. And that has been, I think, just really something that I took for granted and didn't know how much impact, how much learning I would gain from just doing something as simple as that. Yeah, I think that's a really important one. And it is, it's an easy one to forget about, especially when you're not required to listen to X amount of music for right. such class. How do you start? Where... 
when you're you're going to sit down, you're going to listen to something. Do you have a playlist that you go to or like a Spotify or Apple radio station or where where do you start with that? It all depends on the mood that I'm in. Usually if I'm like, okay, I'm really feeling like I'm in a, a new music vibe right now. Whatever composer pops in my head first, like, okay, John Adams. Okay, like, hmm, what big John Adams work I have, haven't listened to that I should know? Oh, Nixon in China, the opera. You're like, okay, I, I need to have been able to say, I've listened to Nixon in China at least once as a conductor. And so I'll just, all right, I'll just listen to it now. Why not? I love opera. <laughs> I'm so excited to go see a live production again. Oh my gosh, yeah. me too. So how do we start to make music more accessible to a wider audience? How, how do we do that moving forward, especially coming back into a, a live concert scenario? That's a great question. And you know, this is, this is something that a lot of orchestras are focusing on is, is, it's always that question of how do we get a younger audience? How do we get a, a more diverse audience? I have my own thoughts on that. I guess for me, it's one is doing, just having good programs and, and good programming and broadening the, the repertoire that the orchestra does. So the orchestra, most people, when you say a symphony or symphony orchestra, they, they think Beethoven or they think Mozart and they think this high stodgy experience or, or very high class. And I want to make, I think we need to make the orchestra, for me, at least this medium of music, just show people that the orchestra is in many different aspects of their lives, especially a film score. Yeah. And doing that music, doing programs by John Williams, doing programs where we're partnering with Gregory Allen Isakoff, who's an indie folk singer and having the orchestra back him up on that and, and seeing the orchestra in a different way so that that creates the access point into relating to an orchestra. You know, we're like, oh yeah, I love this music. Oh, it's an orchestra playing. And then they see the brochure. Oh, I've always heard of Beethoven. Huh, let me come to a Beethoven concert because this orchestra, I like the way this sounds. So let me come to this. And then they, it's just a little domino effect from there. Um, yeah, I think it's just all about access point. And then when they're there, connecting with them and talking mm -hmm. to them in a very uh, normal way and, and finding spots in the music that they can relate to and giving people expectation on what to expect when they're going to hear this Beethoven symphony. What was he going through in the time? Why did he write this piece? So that as they're listening to it, they have an even more engaged experience. And so the experience in itself becomes more fulfilling. And I think that's that cycle um, of starting with something that's super simple and very general, like a film concert. And then it just leads one step to the other. One thing I'm excited about doing is in Bozeman, we have a couple of world premiere commissions. Oh, cool. One is, uh, yeah, one is by a composer named Scott Lee young composer. Awesome. And he's writing this piece that's inspired by Bozeman and I haven't completely decided if I wanted to do this, but I know with new music, you know, it's everyone's hearing it for the first time. And you mm -hmm. usually don't like, you don't really know what you're expecting until 
after that first listen. So I've always thought, well, why don't we play a new piece of music twice? Play the piece of music just as it is, bring out the composer to then talk about what we just heard and why he wrote some things a certain way and then play the piece of music again. Because the second time people are going to know and are be and be familiar with it. Yeah. So that's, that, that's another access point thing is, is just making the music relatable. It's the, the live experience and being able to see that is, is really cool. So working with uh, an orchestra in commissioning a composer to write new music, what's, what's that been like this last year? It's been really great. The second commission is actually not a, the, a commission of a brand new piece, but the commission of an orchestral transcription of a euphonium concerto that Anthony Barfield wrote heritage and uh-huh. give the orchestral world premiere with Demandre playing. That's so, I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So like one of my goals as a conductor is to really push the euphonium concerto repertoire yeah, and make it more of a serious instrument in the orchestral world. That's why we're doing that. And I've always wanted to work with Demandre. Of course. <laughs> in this, in this capacity, right? Is Anthony going to be there too? Or, so when is this happening? Uh, yeah, this is happening. Oh my gosh, you should come. This is happening in November. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's so exciting. You know, Anthony, what a gem. You know, talking about like someone's, someone's voice and like creating new uh, concepts and new music. Mm-hmm. I just, I love the way he writes. He's just <laughs> such a good human and such a good soul and a gosh, great person. And Demandre Thurman is just the goat. So that's going to be super fun. (laughs) It'll be fun. We're going to wrap up with a couple rapid fire questions. Okay. The first question is a concert you'll never forget. Boston Symphony playing Mahler 6 in Berlin. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) Okay. That's a good one. What's the best meal you've ever eaten? There is this place called Eventide in Portland, Maine. Okay. And I have had many best meals at that restaurant, but they have this dish, two things. You have to get the raw oysters there, but they have this brown butter lobster roll. That's the roll is like a Chinese bun type of Uh thing. And then the, the lobster, the brown butter lobster is like warm. It's so good. It just melts in your mouth. Like, yep. I dream about that uh, brown butter lobster roll from Eventide. <laughs> I'm so hungry now. <laughs> Do you have any musical heroes? Simon Rattle. Yes. Yeah. That's a good one. And, and Gustav Mahler. Ah, a good one. Yeah. Yeah. A good one. Is there anything that you've binged watched lately that you've loved? Actually, yes. We just finished it last night. Loki. Oh, yes. I loved Loki. Oh, my God. So good. I'm already like ready for season two. Yeah. It's like, come on, just give it to me now. I don't want to (laughs) wait. Oh, man. Okay. This is a really fun one. This is probably my favorite question to ask people, actually. You can meet any musician, alive or dead, for coffee. Who do you meet and why? Johannes Brahms. Ah. And I just want to see who he was as a person. 
talk to them. Just hang out with them. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, that would be super cool. And he's also my, the composer that I always feel like reminds me why I'm, why I do music for a living. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Ah, oh, okay. This is the last one. This one's pretty easy. Uh, what's one thing that you're grateful for right now? Friends and family. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty good one. Oh man, Norman. It's been so good chatting with you. Thank you so much for being willing yeah, to be a guest. Uh, this was so fun. I hope you enjoyed hearing Norman's story from being a high school band kid to orchestral conductor with quite a thriving career. Have a great week. Stay safe out there, friends. If you haven't heard, Ictus is finally moved into the real world and we have our own website. It's www.ictuspodcast.com. And you guessed it, Ictus is spelled I-C, the number two U-S podcast.com. Mm-hmm.